permission, should you choose to accept it, is to go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. To Roll for initiative. From the silver screen to the GM screen, Never Say Die asks, what can we learn from movies to enhance our role-playing game experience? I'm Rafe Telsch, film critic. And I'm Drew Meyer, gaming enthusiast. And we've had several weeks to think about anything we may have missed about It Chapter 1. But before we get to those thoughts, this is a podcast about movies and role-playing games and podcasts. Uh, Drew, (laughs) have you watched any movies, played any games, or listened to any podcasts in the last several weeks you'd like to recommend to me or or to our listeners? You know, either way. Surprisingly enough... Uh, I haven't watched a lot of movies. Uh, I have been working on a project. The project is now done, but I've been working on a project for the last two months that has, if I had free time, I have been doing something else rather than watching movies. But I've got three that I watched that I kind of want to discuss. One I think you're definitely going to want to discuss with me. Uh, The first is a a rewatch, as is my want uh, on May Day. So May the 1st, I like to watch The Wicker Man. Oh, the the bees! Oh, the original. (laughs) The original... I still have now, never seen the original. <laughs> I was going to say the good one, but yeah, I've that's never also watched, fair. <laughs> I've never watched uh, the the newest one. It's a fantastic film, and every time I watch it, I appreciate it even more. And every time I watch it, uh, I am further convinced by the argument that it is a musical. And then last night, I was doing some house cleaning, and I just, you know, I don't want to watch a new movie while I'm house cleaning because I'm not paying attention, not giving my full. And I just had this urge to watch a Guillermo del Toro film. And I was looking on, on my shelf and everything is kind of like a little intense. And I thought, hmm, you know what's not intense? It's quasi-problematic. But I thought, I haven't watched Mimic 20 years. So I threw on Mimic. Also never seen that one. Oh, my. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, I will say that 20 minutes into the movie, I just stopped cleaning and just watched the movie. And <laughs> and it's one of those films where every time I watch a movie, uh, whether I've seen it or not, if I haven't done the research, as soon as I'm finished with the movie... I go on IMDb, I look at the trivia, I watch a couple of, of think pieces or read some articles. I just like engaging with movies in that way. I'm in the exact same boat. And it's, you know, you have this amazing... Del Toro is such an amazing talent, and there is such a distinct style to his work. And I took two friends to see this film when it first came out in the theaters because I had heard so much about Kronos, but hadn't seen it because I grew up in a town that didn't have foreign films. But I heard there's this new director. They've just hit Hollywood. They're going to change horror forever. I like insects. I thought this is going to be super cool. Uh, and we went and saw it. And it's fine. It's not amazing, in my opinion. Uh, and I was like, I wonder why. It seems, you know, watching Del Toro's other later works, clearly the man's a genius. And the the mentioned films, the Weinsteins are just meddling with this so much that he almost never made another film in America again. And we're mm. very, very fortunate that he did. So anyway, watch that. Another reason good. to hate the Weinsteins, but probably lower on the list than many other reasons. <laughs> uh, I know that you and I have both watched the same film, so we'll talk about that at the end. So what have you watched that you would recommend? I've actually gotten into uh, quite a quite a bit of movies over the last couple of weeks. Uh, not a great run, I have to say. Um, my girlfriend wanted to watch the latest uh, Broken Lizard film, Quasi, and oh, yes, it's right. terrible. It's awful. Don't watch Quasi. It's on Hulu. Uh, instead, just click over a couple titles and watch The Princess, which I watched last year and think is, is a vastly superior Dungeons & Dragons kind of type feel but Quasi was was 
awful. And then that same weekend, my son, very uncharacteristic for him, decided he wanted to watch Peter Pan and Wendy, the oh. new, the newest of Disney's live action adaptations of their animated films. Wait, was this in theaters? No, no, this went straight to Disney Plus. Uh, Jude Law huh. as Captain Hook, uh, and it is not a great movie. But I do have this question for you, Drew. Mm. Is the story of Peter Pan a kids on bikes movie? Um, interesting. You've got kids getting into and out of trouble. They have their own agency, uh, and in the case of Peter Pan, the uh, location is certainly central to the story. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I mean, we don't have a lot of bikes, but there's other forms of transportation that they use. I don't have a copy of Neverland in front of me, but it's one that we discussed really early on when we were talking about Lost Boys. Yeah. Um, if this had been a better movie, it would have been considered for my pick for this this movie. Because I get to pick the movie. I'm very excited about that. I think my main argument against Peter Pan being a kids on bikes story is the lack of a mundane nature to it. It's so sure. magical across sure. the board that it, 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 it may be, I mean, certainly argument could be made, but normally what we're dealing with is a, a fairly mundane situation with one or two magical, horrific science fiction elements. Sure. I think it might be a little too much, but I really like the idea and I think we could easily adjust it to that. Uh, so, yeah. I missed it. Did you recommend Peter Pan and Wendy? It's not bad. I, I think you, I mean, it's it certainly cleans up some of the problems of Peter Pan, the animated film that haven't necessarily, you know, aged well. But, sure. I, you know, and it didn't have the very uncomfortable semi-sexual tension between Peter Pan and Wendy that have existed in some film adaptations of the story. There's nothing like that here. And that's, I appreciate that because there are film versions of Peter Pan that I don't want to ever watch again for that mm -hmm. reason. I get that. Um, so it's not, it's not bad. I will recommend, first of all, my, I uh, introduced my girlfriend to Clue because I quote it all the time. <laughs> uh, anytime anybody ever says to make a long story short in my head, there are voices that call out too late. So I introduced her to that. And then I, I watched the unbearable weight of massive talent and fell in love with this movie. This is Nicolas Cage playing Nick Cage. And if you do exactly what you said you do, Drew, I do too. Uh, you finish watching the movie and then you dive into just even the IMDb trivia on the film. The fact that Nick Cage signed on to do the movie and then wanted to play the other role, the not Nick Cage role, until they signed Pedro Pascal. You know, it's just a treat. It's, it's Nick Cage being crazy. I loved it. I had a blast with it. I have seen that one. I really enjoyed it. Do you know what I did? As soon as I finished watching The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. You watched Face Off? Nope. I watched The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Which I is one of his movies I have not seen. I need to watch that one. That's, and then that's... you know what I did after I finished watching The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari? You watched Face Off? Nope. I watched Paddington too. <laughs> I made a joke about that just last night. And then the one that I know we both have seen, a uh, recent theatrical release, uh, is uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, which everybody is going crazy about. I've heard many people saying that it is now one of their favorite trilogies up there with the classic Star Wars trilogy and the Lord of the Rings trilogy, to which I have to say, eh? <laughs> I, I didn't find it all that fantastic, and I've felt like it suffered from a lot of the problems that the, the current generation of MCU movies suffers from. So, I, I mean, I thought it had some good elements to it, but all in all, I wasn't as crazy about it. It wasn't one of my higher MCU movies. But I know you've seen it too. I have. So argue with me. What did you think about it? Well, as you know, I dislike anything that has anthropomorphic animals in it, especially if they're raccoons. 
<laughs> no, no. I of course I'm kidding. I love I love that stuff. Clearly, my my role playing game choices from the last couple right. of months have shown that I'm thoroughly interested and invested in that. Um, so I I think I probably thought of this movie a little bit higher than you did. It definitely feels like one that I need to go back and rewatch because tonally I went in expecting it to be the kind of romp that the other two Guardians films are. You know, a romp with daddy issues is, is what you're going to get. A lot of stupid, a lot of action, and more stupid. And this film, if this film <laughs> suffers from anything, it is tonally uneven because at the heart of it is a there's a, a lot of serious material going on. And then to balance that serious material, they go over with the stupid. And mm. so I think it never really struck a good balance for me, but I enjoyed it and I cried several times. I got very weepy and emotional about it. And I think the the theater I went with, the the university I attend gave out free tickets and so it was me and a bunch of other students. I was probably the oldest person there. But um, <laughs> it was 40 minutes into the movie before the entire audience laughed as one, as a whole. And that's saying something about that film. There's laughter throughout, but not as a whole. The whole audience laughed at one thing. But when the moments were emotional, I could hear sniffles throughout crying. So ultimately, I liked it. I think it was a it's a, a good film. I wouldn't say that it sums up the trilogy well, because yeah. I think all three of the movies are kind of individual, and they certainly all have their own problems. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. I liked it. I dug it. And there's a lot to mind for role-playing games. Lots to mind. After Thor, Love and Thunder, the low bar is set so low now that I can just say any of them are good. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I have seen that. Sadly, I watched it at home rather than on the big screen, which probably would have upped my appreciation of it, which nope. it has its moments. I still haven't seen Ant-Man. It's at the Dollar Theater now, and I still can't bring myself to see Ant-Man, and I'm kind of interested and kind of not. I don't know. I had fun with that one. Yeah. Uh, sure. It's also not great, but it's but it's fun. All right. On the role-playing game front, Drew, what's caught your attention? Uh, well, I would say that um, we had a really great session with my library group yesterday. I played a game um, that involved a Wheel of Fortune, so I actually had a wheel that the, the, the teens could spin. Each one nice. had a symbol, and each symbol correlated to a, a challenge. I wouldn't necessarily a trap. None of them were good. All of them were bad. And uh, that just prop where they could had to stand up and spin a wheel in front of everybody. And then just, I would just like, okay, you got that? Oh, interesting. Interesting. You know, you know, never trust a smiling DM. I didn't read the scenario. Like they entered a room that was a, um, like a tiled floor and a disco ball appears above them and they have to choose a tile to stand on. And I would roll one die, a six sided die for one access and the other six die die for the other. And the disco ball would fire. They, They would light up. The floor tiles would light up like a like a, a Saturday Night Fever floor, uh, and a blast of polymorph would come down, and so several of the characters were turned into squirrels uh, before they had finally <laughs> figured out a way to escape the room. Stuff like that. Uh, now, were they anthropomorphic fun. squirrels, or were they just no? They were just squirrels. squirrels. They squirrels okay. with um, their characters' intelligence, but the inability to do almost any of their other stuff. They still found good ways around it. Excellent storytelling was had by all. And I, I did make them act out what it would be like to be a squirrel. So there's a lot of um, nice, uh, you know, chittering sounds and, and stuff. Yeah, so fun. I have hit the uh, nice mark with my D&D group. Uh, it's taken me uh, over a year to hit it, but I am finally writing slash planning the right amount for an evening session. Mm-hmm. Like when, when I sat down and got them all together, we did our zero session and then I started writing and I was like, this will probably be like two or three sessions. It was the next eight months. 
I had yeah. way overplanned. <laughs> and then we hit a session where I hadn't planned enough. So now I'm the last couple of sessions, like I've had just the right amount planned out. There's not mm-hmm. a whole lot that I have left for the next month, but at the same time, they're, they're, we're not falling short. And it's like, it's actually really enjoyable thing from a dm standpoint to have that feeling to be like yes we hit everything i wanted to hit i don't have anything i have to hold on to for the next session in my brain it's a tricky thing the sweet spot for a gaming group when you run one shots at conventions and you know that you're going to be playing with people you've never met before who may or may not know the rules and you only have three hours to four hours to impress them with a a one shot you know there's ways to prepare for that but if you're trying to cater for a specific audience i.e a a gaming group that takes some time and it's one of the things where it i appreciate it as a game master and i appreciate it when my players appreciate me as a game master figuring out what they want so now i've i've figured out my teens a little bit better i know what they need from that experience so i'm more likely to provide them with the gaming experience regardless of the system that we're playing with though it's always going to be D. they're like so <laughs> like i give them this list of all these other games I'm like no we just want to play dungeons and dragons Unless there's a Stranger Thing game, and I'm like, there is. It's called Kids on Bikes. And like, yeah, we're kids. We don't really want to do it. And they're like, yeah, right. that's fair. A couple of the things that, that have caught my attention. So there was a thing that was going around that Brendan Lee Mulligan from Dimension 20 came up with an emphasis role, mm-hmm. uh, which is good for narrative storytelling, which is if your player wants to do something story-wise and there isn't really a rule for it, this is for D&D, but it, this can be for any game. I think you could adjust this. You roll two die, and whichever roll is uh, farthest from 10, that's the role you keep. So it could be something really good. It could be something really bad. And this is one of those situations where the rules don't exist for it or their character shouldn't be able to do it. Important for game masters. If it's going to break the game, don't do it. But right. if it is going to get your... If all of your players are excited for them to, to do something and they shouldn't be able to do that based off of who their character is, you know, like leap across a gorge, catch the following goat, you know... Uh, throw the goat into the portal and something, 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 you know, whatever. This is kind of fun because you're either going to fail spectacularly or succeed spectacularly. And that is in itself an exciting role. And I think it, you know, yay, yeah, Brendan Lee Mulligan. I, I, you shared this with me and I absolutely love it. I think it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, again, uh, homebrew, homebrew, homebrew. Uh, I'm happy to pick up anybody's homebrew roles at this point in time because there's so many things going out there with new rules and et cetera. Anything that'll make it more exciting and more streamlined. Just as far as roles are concerned, I, I mentioned, I think with my teens uh, several months ago that we had a, a game where in a three-hour session, they rolled 13 critical failures. Again, Dungeons right. and Dragons. Uh, and in a total party kill. And they were okay with it, mainly because rather than treating it as a failure, even though I called it critical fail, there's still ways to mitigate those ones as both a player and a game master. And Riley Silverman uh, on D&D Beyond had a fantastic article. We'll, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Uh, just on how to, as a player and a game master, deal with failures, especially if they happen a lot. But mostly it's a discussion of not thinking of it as a failure and instead thinking of it as what you wanted to do didn't happen. So now you put that kind of onus on the players to describe why it didn't work. And that, Mm -hmm. it takes the player out of that mentality of, oh, I didn't do it right, into, oh, I get to describe how my character messes up. Right. And I think it's an important rule. And, you know, again, things like Powered by the Apocalypse, when you're dealing with two six-sided dies, and, you know, you've got your, like, two to five fails, six to nine works, but there's a, a negative side, and then 10 through 12 succeeds, and you do exactly what you want. That game builds that into it. 
And it's one of those things, especially with something like Dungeons and Dragons, where I've always felt that the game really is kind of like a binary, either succeed or fail, which, eh, not really my thing. I really like more <laughs> <laughs> leeway to it. But Well, speaking of D&D Beyond, uh, also should talk about one of the things that caught my attention was that they released uh, the next, I guess, wave of playtesting materials mm-hmm. uh, for D&D's next edition, whatever that's going to end up being. Uh, and... The, the previous ones have been like two character classes here and two character classes there. And a lot of them didn't pertain to my group because they weren't playing those classes. Uh, but they, the last one that they released is like this major, major change, mm-hmm. uh, which they've changed uh, some to some degree how weapons are handled. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that therefore impacts warriors because warriors now have like mastery over weapons, which gets them added effects as opposed to, a, you know, a rogue using a dagger, a warrior who uses a dagger might be able to pull something extra off. The, it, not warrior, fighter. But the idea of the fighter is a master of weapons. So they've created this new element to weapons called mastery. Uh, this, as soon as I saw it, I went, it's more rules. Drew is not going to buy into this. <laughs> um, and then they changed some spells and they changed around the spellcaster. So all of your spellcaster classes and the fighter and the weapons and the mastery and spell changes. But one of the things I liked about this document uh, that you don't get when you just, you know, get a player's handbook or a DM's guide is they explained in kind of the TLDR part of it why they made these changes. You know, Mm -hmm. players gave this feedback about warlocks that it's not enough spells. Because like my son plays a warlock. He's level three. He only has two spell slots. He had two spell slots at level one. You know, it it has it doesn't change. And so like it said, you know, players complained that warlocks don't get enough spells, so we've made some changes to be able to give them the opportunity to cast more. And the trade-off was that we took this away from them or something like that. You know, it's Mm -hmm. I, I appreciated kind of, you know, pulling back the curtain and showing us why you are playtesting these changes as opposed to just here's a new set of rules because we want to make another hundred dollars per book yeah and agreed and people will playtest that and they'll get some feedback and hopefully they'll go with what the majority decides or at least is pushing for i did print it i did read it a little bit not in its entirety i've got a lot of other stuff going on and again it's dnd it's again you're right (laughs) you've called it so many rules and also you know considering this is a game that i've been playing for 40 years part of my brain still remembers what the first edition does and advanced Dungeons and dragons and so like someone go what does this spell do and i'm like well it does wait does is that the last edition and i've done that at my table so many times over the past year well it's you know the other thing too is like i'm getting not only are there so many editions i have to remember i'm also reading you know two or three game rule books a month so i'm learning new rules constantly but i'm also getting older and my memory's garbage so you know the only (laughs) thing i seem to can remember is movies which is don't worry we'll be talking about movies in just a second yeah so yeah i I, i'm i'm excited that again they're engaging with the fans and i i'm i'm excited that the fans are engaging back though somewhat hesitantly now yes yeah and understandably so yeah uh, podcasts, uh, I know you have something sad so to say podcast-wise, so I'm just going to say this. While listening to Films to be Buried With, I learned about a new podcast called Off Menu where you create uh, – it's an interview show very similar to Films to be Buried With, but rather than dying and learning about your life through movies, this is about your favorite foods. And so this mm-hmm. is one of the most popular – podcasts in the uk it does roughly run an hour to 90 minutes so it is a much shorter podcast than some of the other ones i have recommended and the (laughs) the stars that they have got on the show are exceptional especially in the uk and if i can find an interview with joe cornish you know you know director of two of our kids on bikes movies i'm going to always listen to that 
And on the off menu, Joe Cornish, excellent interview. But one of the things he was saying is that he takes great pride in, but is also very difficult, is naming characters. Um, this is something that anyone who plays role-playing games or writes uh, has to deal with. And mm-hmm. they were like, well, do you have a favorite character name? He goes, you know, I got to say, pretty proud of Pest. So um, he did mention that he was working on the script for Attack the Block 2. Everyone who was in the original one is on board for coming back. So that got me really excited because that's the first confirmation I've heard from him that the project is being worked on and moving forward. So uh, that was exciting. So if you're looking for that, again, it's called Off Menu with Ed Gamble and James A. Castor. It's super fun. Oh, Uh, so yeah. Yeah, a bit of sad news on my front. Uh, last month, uh, I recommended in the intermission, I mentioned the Double Edge Double Bill podcast, which is done by a couple of friends of mine. Uh, in that, when I mentioned it in that context, it was that they were having kind of the same conversation that we were having about certain films and certain filmmakers. And I just kind of, I felt justified in things that we said, hey, we're, we, we're making, we're saying the same things. We're making the same points. We're getting the same things. That's good. And unfortunately, uh, in the month that has passed since then, uh, this week, in fact, as we're recording this, this past week, uh, they have ended the show. For, ended for good reasons, uh, and at least one of them will have another show coming out in the future. I'm sure it'll be more movie discussion. But it's, you know, they've been doing it for over five years. As someone who struggles to keep <laughs> consistency with a podcast, uh, I understand the, the struggle that keeping a show alive for five years can be. Uh, so uh, it is a, a hearty goodbye to Double Edge, Double Bill. Sorry, guys, we will miss you, but uh, thanks for all the laughs along the way. It's a great podcast. Love listening to it. And I would like to say that um, last week, I finally decided to build up the courage to ask them if I could be on the podcast. And uh, when I went to see what they had been talking about most recently, I saw the announcement for (laughs) the fact they were ending it. And I was like, well, too late. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Timing's everything, Drew. (laughs) It really is. It really is. Uh, critical fail. All anyway. right, well, let's get into our second opinions on It Chapter 1, which is the movie we've been discussing this month. Drew, did anything come to mind that we missed in the last episode or anything you wanted to add on to it? Oh, you mean the episode that we talked for uh, an hour and 45 minutes? No, I, I think for the most part we hey, covered... Hey, we talked for over two hours. That was the edited version you, of that you conversation. You are an excellent editor, sir. I, I, <laughs> I doff my cap to you, sir. Uh, the only thing I really wanted to say was... That the film is surprisingly rewatchable. Yes. And it, that rewatchability is one of the highest compliments I can give a film. Now, admittedly, not every movie that is great is one that you can rewatch over and over again. I think we mentioned it on our interview with Brian Trenchard Smith that The Seventh Samurai, a film I love, I can only watch every five years. There's something about diluting its greatness, or it's just, you know, it kind of overwhelms me. And then there's movies like. Tremors, where I can throw it on at any time I want and and just... Because it's a great film. Right. I think this is one of those films, even though it is scary and it it has those great jump scares and it it has some gross moments, I think those levels of uncomfortableness that are in the film are done in such a way that the film is rewatchable. And, you know, I've watched it twice in the last month and I probably could throw it on again if I wasn't really wanting to watch different films. But sure. uh, I think that just needed to be said. I think not only is it a good film, but I think it's it's one that I could I could revisit. I I have seen it three or four times now since it came out, which you know mm-hmm. that means my revisiting of it has been spaced out. But still, the fact that there are some movies that I'm watched I watch and I'll be like, yeah, okay, I've seen that now, and I'll never revisit again. Yeah. 
Uh, so yeah, I totally agree with you. I think it's a very rewatchable film. I almost rewatched it again just to get ready for this, for the intermission, just in case something had, you know, slipped my mind. I, I almost did too um, when it came to um, statting my draft um, because yep. I, I, I felt like I missed something and we'll talk about that in just a moment. Yeah. Well, I actually had a couple of things that I thought of as we were recording that it was just no longer the right time to bring up. So... Uh, first of all, we talked in that episode, we talked about It Chapter 1, we also mentioned It Chapter 2, we also mentioned the the, the miniseries, uh, but what we failed to mention, and I, I should have, I had it in notes somewhere, uh, is that there is a forthcoming series that will continue this story, or at least will begin this story, because it'll take place in the 1960s, called Welcome to Dairy. Uh, and the, what little information we have is that it'll take place in the 1960s, that manifestation of It um, so no doubt terrorizing kids, terrorizing adults, you know, terrorizing the town. Some have speculated that that will be kind of the origin of Pennywise, but I felt like the movie intimated that he came from farther back than then. Um, yeah, absolutely. We, we do know that Bill Skarsgård uh, will not be reprising the role of Pennywise for the series, even though Andy Machete will direct several of the episodes. And in fact, he's uh, writing the series along with his sister and uh, a couple other people. So it will have Machete's fingerprints on it in some capacity, just the actor who plays Pennywise will be different. That's interesting. And it's something, depending on what platform is is running it, I, I will probably give it a watch. HBO Max. I will I will probably give it a watch because HBO Max has the money to throw at it. Which I guess will just be Max after the next couple of weeks. <laughs> right, it will just be Max. Um, there's something else I wanted to mention. I, I kind of forgot about it. In the, it's kind of movie adjacent. Uh, I saw a trailer for the new Flash, the Ezra Miller Flash movie, which I was not going to watch because DC's track record, not great. Ezra Miller, not great. I, the gimmicks of bringing certain characters from different universes back, other movies have probably done it better, but I am now going to watch this movie, and I'm going to watch this movie because uh, the new Flash film is directed by Machete. So I think based on the quality of it, Chapter 1, I will give it a shot. Will I spend the money in the theater? I don't know yet. But I just want to throw that out there. So, you know, okay. it, the film's good enough. It made me want to see the director's other works. Sure, sure. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to bring up uh, that we didn't discuss. One of the problems I have with it, chapter one, uh, mm. and again, it's a deviation from the novel. But Bev becomes kind of that stereotypical damsel in distress by the movie's end. You know, the rest of the losers club has to come rescue her. And mm -hmm. of course, my question is: out of all of the losers, why did it have to be the girl? who is the one who needs rescuing. But you brought up a point during our discussion last time that actually suddenly made me okay with that. And that is <laughs> Bev's fixation with fairy tales. Mm -hmm. And I, again, I need to go back and rewatch the movie. I haven't completely solidified my thoughts on that, but there is something to Bev's fantasy world of fairy tales and her becoming the damsel in distress that just sits right for me. And I, I need to explore that a little bit more, but I felt like it was, it was worth mentioning that here was this aspect of the story that I didn't really like. And then suddenly maybe it's okay. Well, the other thing that's kind of problematic with the film is she is awakened by a kiss, right? So she has yeah. that sleeping beauty moment, but that works with Ben's character. Yes. In that, <laughs> And it's and it's better than the alternative that was in the novel, Drew. <laughs> Correct, of course. Now let me flip this to you. What if it was Ben? Is it can't be Bill? 
right? Bill can't be the one who gets the deadlights and has right. Bev wake him with a kiss. That doesn't work. Could Ben have been triggered and floated by the, via the deadlights and Beverly kissed him? Or that would that see that to me would be a better representation of her fairy tale story as if she was the one giving the kiss. I still think, you know, in even in the time that this movie was made, that's kind of a creepy thing to add in, but okay. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And um, you know, consent hugely popular. The other thing too is if this was in the eighties you could have one of the boys do it and them discussing giving him a kiss, uh, one of the other boys kissing them, and you know it would elicit a lot of homophobic responses, especially among that group. But last time we recorded, I did not know a certain aspect about It Chapter 2 and doing the research. I have learned something about It Chapter 2. That one of the, one of the characters' uh, sexual orientation? Two of the characters' sexual orientation. Are, yeah, yeah. Or I guess I guess one, potentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that possibly could have worked. I think, yeah. I think if you include that in the story, which they did, the way they did it wasn't horribly distasteful, horribly offensive, but who am I to tell you what to be offended by? Yeah. So... No, I agree. I think it's interesting that the, the, the Awaken with the Kiss and the fairy tale fixation, which they didn't really strongly emphasize, you have to kind of right. do what right. I did, which is like pausing the film and looking at people's rooms because I find that amazingly fascinating, um, especially in this genre. So, yeah, interesting. What about on the RPG side, Drew? Did you miss anything? Um, missing, no, but uh, <laughs> the first thing I should have done was probably done all that fear talk uh, on this episode just to save everybody the, the 20 minutes. But no, speaking I think of awakening someone with a kiss, uh, the whole floating aspect is interesting in the movie particularly because they physically float and we don't really have a good reason why they do that. Uh, they're exposed to the deadlights. The character kind of phases out. They're not responding. So in the game, if you are floating... However your character does this, um, you are victims of the threat. The threat has turned you into, I'm going to call it a battery. Somehow you were being saved for later. And my guess is something that, that while Pennywise does physically consume its victims, I imagine that it feeds off of fear just as much. And so that's part of that, how that works. So if a character does become a victim of the threat, either by floating or something else, you ha are taking psychic damage over time. And when you reach zero, if you're doing something like D&D &D, or if, you know, depending on what your your damage is in the game, not, not everyone has a, a HP equivalent, uh, you'll die over time. So you have a kind of ticking clock, something we love, of course. And the in order to restore the victim, they have to be brought back to Earth and, and psychically or physically reconnected with the world. Again, the book is different. Yeah. The movie does something different, but I do like the idea that your character could be taken out of play without being removed permanently from play. Yeah. So for instance, like one of your players, uh, you know, can't make it to the next session and you have their permission to use them as a narrative story point, then you could potentially turn them into a deadlight and have them try to save them. I think that works. Yeah. It doesn't, there's no real specific logistics with it, but it is an idea to kind of look at it. No, I like it. All right, well, let us talk about our draft. We made our picks from the film last episode, and now it is time to give them some stats to flesh them out a little bit using the Kids on Bikes upcoming 2.0 tropes that we've had access to. So, Drew, do you want to talk about uh, what you came up with for uh, good old Richie Tozer? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, this was interesting. So, we got Richie. First thing you want to do is, if you're playing in this game, you got to know what they're afraid of. Richie is afraid of clowns, which, um, 
I don't know how I feel about Richie being afraid of like the main <laughs> the main threat. It almost feels like a lack of creativity. But fear of clowns. There you go. Uh, true. Well, and again, what? it's something that got changed from the book. So <laughs> sure, sure. But again. We're not caring about the book at this right. point in time. We're just looking at the movie. I don't have a funny sidekick on my team, and I still don't have a funny sidekick on my team because I don't particularly find Richie funny. I find him annoying. So this is the trope, the annoying sidekick. Uh, we're emphasizing grit uh, above all because he's not really, well, grit and flight, um, running away, talking yourself out of situation, charm. Brains is on the lower scale because he's definitely putting his foot in his mouth and saying things he shouldn't be doing. Fight is low and brawn is even lower. As far as strengths are concerned, I'm going with easygoing. Why? He is a high-maintenance character, but I think the payoff and the balance of having a character that is constantly making jokes is that with the the strength of easygoing, anytime they fail a role, they get there's some AT that they can use to affect the game in other ways. Easygoing gets two um, rather than one. And I think the character then becomes useful. Like it has a way that they can spend those points to affect the story narratively. Um, The next strike is heroic. I don't feel that Richie is a heroic character. So I put heroic in quotation points. It's a defense mechanism. He is sidestepping things. And and possibly that is because of his own self-loathing or his need for attention with the group. But I think he can actually create that bravado so with heroic you don't have to get your game master's permission to not be afraid of something because thinking about the movie richie has the weirdest relationship with pennywise of anybody because he is he's the only one in the group who is not visited by pennywise when he's alone he is separated from the group Mm. in the house and he goes into the clown room but that's after the fact yeah but we actually never see richie's parents right true do we no. So unlike every other character who we we see, we always talk about there's always a negative aspect. I didn't even occur to me. His character is so annoying that I didn't notice that we don't <laughs> see his home life. We don't see what horrible things his parents do. Yeah, it's he's just there to be kind of like loud and frenetic. So yeah, flaw, beep beep Richie. He is going to speak before he thinks and he is going to be great for the game master making sure that he gets into trouble um, and says the wrong thing. <laughs> His knack, I put distractions, but I'm I'm wondering if it's less distracting and more sidestepping. Um, he has a way of turning the conversation uh, on its ear and, and kind of deflecting is probably the word I'm looking for. Deflection is a better... And I would almost say that deflection is, to some degree, serves as a morale booster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, he... he and I think that's where they're easygoing and... Um, the action took us to stuff. The backpack is weird. I want to talk about the <laughs> physical stuff because thinking about the movie, I was trying to think that does Richie have any one physical item that we see throughout the film that we can identify with? Almost everybody else does. Richie does not. Yes, he steals a tuba, but I'm not going to say that he's got a tuba in his backpack. What he has <laughs> is snacks because the one time when he goes over to Eddie's house and he raids their pantry... And he's like, you know, you can take anything except for the so-and-so. My mom loves those. We just see him with a backpack filling it with snacks. So he's got a, a backpack full of snacks. And it's it's funny because he's not even providing those. He just is carrying them. As far as the abstract is concerned, I, I think he has a tentative nature with everybody. 
he doesn't really bring anything that I would say. Like we we don't we don't. It's like you know we were saying like if I'm like Richie when I was a kid, it would be because I was constantly giving out trivia knowledge or movies. At least I know something about that. He is just annoying. Yes, he comes around at the end, but he splits the group. He's sort of an antagonist in in, in that. And so True. the abstract of that is is kind of difficult. And because we don't know much about his home life, I'm, I was really hard-pressed to come up with something. Can you think of something that would be good as an abstract that he could carry in his backpack? I, I would almost put that morale boost, morale booster there, I think, uh-huh. tied to the distractions from the knack. Um, that's yeah. the only thing I can really think of. Well, I would say that potentially on there, he has beef with everybody. Could be on there. I know it's a negative, and it's a shame that we have to give him this. We've done, but we've done negative like, abstracts yeah, before. <laughs> I think I think he's probably ticked off somebody, almost everybody that they encounter in the town. So yeah, yeah, I think <laughs> I think that's probably what I got. All right, his bike. He's got a red bike. Uh, originally, I thought that because he does carry Eddie back after Eddie breaks his arm, that the um, banana seat, so that both both he could carry an extra person. That's that not really sense. who Richie is. So no. I was looking over them, and uh, I'm going with a red bike in the second edition rules. What we have um, is it's ambitious, not a word I would describe him, but it says that each adversity token that you spend during a game adds an additional plus one. So the balance, again, is if he's getting two adversity tokens for failures, he is talking those failures up so much that he is flipping it for that kind of morale boost so that between his bike and his strength, you almost want him to fail mm-hmm. in, in the same way that there is a setup for this in, in Monster of the Apocalypse. I think they call it the mundane. That's the, the kit for that one. It's essentially Xander from Buffy as the Zeppo, whereas like... <laughs> <laughs> yes, he doesn't have powers. You've got a wizard and you've got a slayer and you've got gods and you've got monsters on your team and you're just this random person, but you are what that playbook does is every time they fail, they get to spend those points even more so. So they affect the story in ways. They get those morales. So I think that's what we're going to do. And the upgrade would be trading cards and trading cards is put them in your wheel spokes. And they make so much noise. You get plus one uh, to any rules that are distracting. So I think that works out really well. I think yeah. you, you give him the um, Richie, the lookout role and the, if we get into trouble, you know what to do. It's like, why am I always the one? <laughs> because you're the best at it. I, I guess you're right. So, so there you go. I don't see Richie making your final roster for some reason, <laughs> based on comments you just made. <laughs> um, uh, I I would I would say the same thing, and depending on your next selection and my next selection, I think there's a very good chance he makes it. Um, oh, okay. Okay. I, I, not and not because I want him on a team, <laughs> but because I think he needs to be on the team. We'll see. Uh, how about Beverly? You have, Beverly, a far more interesting and well-rounded character. And interesting made it hard to do again. Of course, Um, but those are the characters that are are worth playing. As you said, starting with the fear, and for Beverly, that fear is her father. Um, Mm. When you get into it, chapter two, it's that's that's that really plays into it that it is her father is what she was most afraid of. Uh, She carries that throughout her life. So, well, having not seen, I I I, I agree with you. She's definitely her father. I mean, even the blood, the blood in the bathroom, the fear isn't this. As as much the blood in the bathroom as, oh, God, this is going to get dad's attention and he's going to be mad about it. Oh, that's not how. See, so my take on that is blood and hair is, is puberty, right? 
Right. Like you're developing hair where you didn't have and blood being blood. I think her fear is also her father, but it's also her developing her puberty and who she is becoming because the whole town sees her in a certain way. I'm not saying you're wrong. Clearly she's afraid oh, of no, her father. Oh, no, see, I think it's puberty and the idea that the abuse she gets to. from her father can now have more consequences. Yes, agreed, agreed. So, so yeah, I, I, I think it's her father. I had a heck of a time trying to pick a trope. Yes. Uh, and, and I still... I don't do the Drew thing where I just kind of make my own and juggle stuff around. I, maybe I need to do that. So The rules the, are the, in there, especially in second edition, to create your own. Yeah. I know. I, I'm not, that was not an accusation. That was just, sure, I just course. haven't gotten to that level of this yet. Maybe, maybe uh, by the time we reach the end of this, <laughs> two more movies. So I went with the young provider, except mm-hmm. for she's not really a provider. So I called it young self provider. Agreed. Um, and, yeah, I, and mostly because of the stats, the stats give her grit, brawn, charm, brains, fight, and flight. And I originally really wanted her to have a higher charm and a higher fight or f- and flight. And then I was like, well, she's not. Just because all the boys are interested in her doesn't mean that her charm level is that high. And the truth is, the fact that she endures what she endures without having some sort of complete and total emotional breakdown means she's got some grit to her. So I decided oh, that's, agreed. that's the stats that I kind of liked. For her strength, she's rebellious. Do you know how we know she's rebellious, Drew? How do we know that? Because she smokes cigarettes. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Oh, so wait, you have a young provi- trope that says young provider, but we talked about self-provider and smokes cigarettes. Is she the Chris Chambers of the uh, losers? She is. She kind of is. Because she brings everybody together, doesn't she? Yeah, so she's rebellious, and I think she is heroic, even though Agreed. we didn't get the full chance to see her do that because she's taken out for the third act. But uh, but her flaw is, and I, I went back and looked at the test version of second edition. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea of the the flaws and everything can come from, and the abstract, you know, everything can come from, you know, bring that from their background. Don't just throw labels on it. Right. And she is insecure, uh, mm-hmm. and I like she's she stands her own verbally. When she's assaulted at the beginning of the movie by the other girls, when they dump the trash on her, she stands her own verbally. But, you know, think about, like, the fact that she, she cuts her hair. Oh, yeah. You know, that's that's a mark of insecurity. So I liked that. For her knack, I decided she has a five-finger discount as her knack. Well, I, I applaud you for not going with the obvious thing, which would have been distractions through flirtation. Because right. definitely focusing on that aspect of her character is not what we want to do. And I think five-finger discount works Perfectly. Yeah, I was really trying to avoid that part of it. So, um, yeah. in her backpack, I put her abstract is that she is fiercely independent because this is a result of her mom died when she was young mm-hmm. and her dad uh, is abusive and yes. is not really much of a supporter, which has led to her being fiercely independent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. the physical aspect I put in her backpack is cigarettes. And one other thing that I don't know what it is. She always has a key around her neck. Is that a bike key to unlock her bike? I don't think. I think that's her house key. Okay. I don't she know. always has a, every every picture I could find in the thing. She always has a key. That's a good dangling. Point. So I think uh, certainly house key makes a lot of sense. I certainly would award players um, if they came up with an alternate. Like she keeps something maybe that locked up somewhere in Derry. Yeah. Be a fun little twist. Oh, I on. like that idea. Yeah. Um, for her bike, uh, it is blue, which is trustworthy, so she gets a plus one to charm checks. That's really of the different stats and colors that were given the best mm-hmm. match that I could come up with for her. And her upgrade is a basket, which means once a day she can get a, she can pull a common item out of the basket. Most likely she got that from shoplifting. I like it. I so. like it. Yeah. No, I think it's a, a really good good take on that character. Excellent. All right. From social media, Drew, what do we got? 
social social feedback, shall we say. <laughs> well, last time we recorded, we were like, hey, we're recording tonight. Anybody have any questions? And uh, we recorded before we actually checked those questions. Uh, so <laughs> um, we did get some from Sarah. And Sarah asks, several times you have talked about a team of Corys. Although your choices haven't skewed that way. Correct. I would love to hear your thoughts on how that might play out. I can just imagine Teddy, Edgar Frog, and Mouth questing together. Would they succeed, or do they just get in each other's way? They do well, not succeed. They do not succeed. <laughs> uh, well, they, no, okay. they don't even get. They don't even get to the destination without a fight breaking out between the three of them. <laughs> Agreed. Completely agree. Though you know, with technology and deep fakes the way it is, I, I think this is an excellent adventure. I think the tenacity of Edgar Frog. Okay, so here's how this would work as a team. Frog is going to be the leader, even though Mouth wants to be the leader, and Teddy wants to be the leader. So they all want to be the leader, and no one's going to listen to the other one. But I think Edgar, through the physical force, is going to do things. I think Mouth is going to wind Teddy up in the way that he winds up Chunk. So I think a lot of Teddy's decisions to do things are going to be based around Mouth telling him that he shouldn't do those things and him doing it anyway. I think Teddy is always going to be the loose cannon of that group Mm -hmm. uh, and is going to cause a a lot of issues, but will also prove himself when it really matters to be quite brave, and that will impress Frog. So I think you have a rock, paper, scissors of your Corys. So we could do Teddy, Eddie, and Mouth kind of a rock, paper, scissors thing. Would they succeed? Ultimately, yes. Will they get in each other's way? Ultimately, yes. But I think it works. Uh, and I and actually, it's, it's something that I think I would have more fun as a game master setting that up than I would maybe as even a player for those characters. I am ultimately glad that I did not go the the team of Corys. Coming I, I like coming soon from Drew and Rafe Productions, Teddy, Eddie, and Mouth. A new <laughs> card-based game. No. <laughs> what is what is Mouth's real name? Oh, I've forgotten. I, we could probably add an E to it somewhere. Um, <laughs> Clark. Please tell me it's Frederick. And it's Clark. Teddy, Eddie, and Freddy. Clark. <laughs> Clark. Oh, no. That's weird. <laughs> That just seems wrong. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, so I, uh, sorry, I hope that answers your question. Um, and it's certainly one that we have been thinking about. Rafe, crowdsourcing. Yes. There's a couple of things that are coming out, two that I already know that I'm going to get. Um, one is called Badge Quest. It's already out. And I think they basically were came out a while ago as far as a crowdsource, but you can buy it now. It is a kids on bikes that focuses on scouting. Again, there's a lot of these out there. Do I need another one? Absolutely not. Will I get it? Absolutely will. Just because I, I'm i so enamored by this genre that I want to read every single book on it. And if right. there is even one or two things that I can steal from it to make mine and my player's game better, I will do so. And then the other thing is, hasn't come out yet, but it is coming. It's from Rowan, Rook, and Deckard. I haven't discussed Hardy Dice Friends in a while. Um, I did go back recently and listen to the episodes where they, they talked about my suggestions because... That's the kind of the ego I have, I guess, at this moment. Yeah, anything that they put out is going to be fun. But when you play a game in which you are an elite band of uh, vampire commandos with only one mission, drink all of Hitler's blood, and it's called Eat the Reich, um, <laughs> sold. Like, I don't need to know mechanics. I don't need, you know, assuming this book isn't going to be costly, 
I'm going to buy it. So there you go. What do you got? From Everyday Heroes, uh, which I've talked about on the podcast before, one of the things they've done is they've put out a set of licensed movie type content uh, that you could, like I got the subscription, so I'm getting all of them. But they, so they have like worlds, kind of like GURPS, but not really, but different worlds that are based on cinematic movies. Kind of like what we do, but a little more extreme. So they have like The Crow, (laughs) and they have Highlander, hasn't come out yet, uh, Escape from New York. But the two of them that they've done is Pacific Rim, which, you know, who doesn't want Jaegers versus Kaiju, and um, Kong Skull Island. And what they have now announced, they've just put out on Kickstarter, are cinematic adventure paths. So they've taken these worlds that they've created, and they've given you us an adventure a series of adventures that will take characters from level one to level 10 and that's what i wanted Mm. not that i want to run it but i just wanted one as a model of okay how you you, great you you put out the book that talks about the world and how to create a, a gaming experience in this world that isn't just recreating the movie which is exactly what we do here but how do you actually do it and now they're putting out these two cinematic adventure paths that show you how they do it and some it's it's probably the two of the the movies I'm least interested in of all the ones they put out, but uh, I'm excited in the content in just, I want to see how they recommend doing, you know, a campaign. Yeah, um, I think the Skull Island campaign is the one I am most interested in of all of them, even though Escape from New York is just such a fantastic idea and I want to live in that world all the time. But the Skull Island, uh, I, I have been, for the last almost decade, been working on my own version of a generic pulp monster island and the main trick of it was i i designed it using a system that at the time i was designing it was fully embraced by pulp rpgs i'm not going to name the system i have my reasons um (laughs) and that system changed without them telling me Uh, and so yeah it's just been kind of sitting in a drawer for a while so I would love to take a look at someone else's piece on that and just maybe I don't know I would love to be inspired to revisit that project because it's something that I I I love in literature I love in movies I love in television that Skull Island plus that movie love that movie love still haven't seen that movie yet love that I need to watch that one yeah yeah it's um it is a very much a me sort of film all right, Drew, it is almost time for me to announce the last movie uh, that I get to pick of this season. But you added a new segment because <laughs> our episodes weren't long enough. <laughs> right. I did. I did. So uh, we're calling this one podcast homework. Um, and just it's just a think piece. And one of the reasons that I added it is I also wanted a way to engage with our our audience, both our listening audience and our Facebook group audience. Because I think questions, uh, I love answering questions, and it's clear from the podcast choices that I've been suggesting for the last couple of months. I also like a good interview. Um, Convention season's starting to kick back up. I'm going to a lot of conventions this year. I'm going to be doing a lot of interviews, and so it's just something that's been on my mind. So asking questions, particularly about something like role-playing games and movies, two things that I love, makes sense. So my first question essentially was, what character's job and situation from a movie would you most want to play in a role-playing game? And the reason I said job and situation, you know, let's say that you're like, I've always wanted to play a mad scientist or a kind of crazy scientist character. Well, you could go the time-traveling scientist route from Back to the Future. You could do a scientist in a monster movie kind of a thing. You know, so it's not just the job. It is the scenario. And I, right. and, 
I'll give you a peek behind the curtain. I had an answer for this almost as soon as I thought of it, and I went, ooh, that's interesting. How can I bring this into play? Well, I'll ask a question. So, Rafe, I'm kind of curious. Did you find a character with a job in a situation from a movie that you would like to play in a role-playing game? Well, this is a fun question for me because it actually ties to one of my favorite role-playing experiences that I've had, uh, which is when I was in high school, uh, my friend uh, Chris and I, when I was later in high school, my friend Chris and I would were really into role-playing games to the point that not only did we have a Shadowrun group that met at least once a month, and we played for like seven or eight hours on a Saturday afternoon, but in between, he and I would play and run solo stuff for each other. And mm. uh, he discovered that I had not seen a particularly popular movie, also one of his favorite movies. And so he then created a, and we spent one evening playing through and I didn't even know because I didn't know the movie. I had no idea. He had ripped this movie off just left and right for running my Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles character back when Palladium had that game. My Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles character through Die Hard. That was how I got to know Die Hard was first as a session where I had I had no familiarity with the movie and he did an ex- excellent job running that. Mm-hmm. So anyway, my my that's not my answer, but just that was a memory that I was like, okay, I got to tie this in. So maybe it's like if you asked me this question next month, I probably would have a completely different answer for it. But I mentioned earlier, Peter Pan and Wendy thought about that as a pick for the podcast, mm. uh, and I went with another movie that I almost went with as a pick for the podcast and at the last minute decided nah and that is i would choose brendan from the movie brick (gasps) because his job if you go job he's a high schooler but he's the hard-boiled detective type in that movie and it is it's their teenagers they don't look like teenagers but they're teenagers It, it just felt too far removed from kids on bikes to do it as a pick but I was like, that's. I still would really like to play that noir detective. There's some good role playing in there. There's a little bit of fighting in there, but it's mostly investigative and role playing. And I think that would make for a really fun evening. Okay, my question for you: One, I love this pick. Brick is a an amazing film. Yeah, and you know, high school noir is. I don't know how many of those kind of movies you could make. This is like it. It's a film that feels so unique. Yeah, uh, in and of itself. In this, you are so you're a teenage detective, right? Like that's the the idea, and right. so the scenario would be high school. Yeah, I okay. There's a double check. Yeah, I think that's really cool. I think that makes a lot of sense. And um, as someone who is whose appreciation of the kids and bikes genre just continues to grow and grow and grow. Yeah, absolutely. I think with a couple of tweaks, that certainly would be, and maybe wouldn't choose that film to just talk about on, on this. Who knows? Maybe maybe I'll select it for my last one. <laughs> but it wouldn't take much to tweak it to take care of that. So that's really cool. So what was your answer? So in 2000 and, well, the movie came out in 2001. I saw it in 2002. And as soon as I thought saw it, I thought, this absolutely without fail is the perfect job and situation um so this this character is uh gregoire de Fransac. um this is a french film and uh he is a naturalist investigating an unusual murder also a detective but he hmm. is not specifically a police detective he has uh, no affiliation with the law it's just that the king of france says hey there's this wolf killing all these people in the small French village. 
The movie, of course, I'm talking about is Brotherhood of the Wolf. Right. Brilliant film. It's a brilliant film. It's a it's a film that is, I don't want to say tonally, the genre, it's genre bending. It has to be seen to be believed. Is it a perfect film? It is not. But the idea that you have a French naturalist who has gone to the Americas and has all of this experience, who is a bit of a trickster in himself, so he's a very intelligent individual, but who's also, you know, a learned man who knows about a world that might as well be alien to the people that he's talking about. It's it's almost like a someone like a John Carter character who has gone to Mars and then come back, right? And then is thrown into these unusual situations, which is well, you know all about animals. Let me put you in this situation, and maybe the situation is not at all what anyone thought it was. So it's a film, 2001's Brotherhood of the Wolf. I do recommend it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are parents listening to this, it is a film that is uh, pretty R. So you know, but certainly don't watch it blind with your kids. But it's it's got everything yeah. a game needs. You've got fantastic social interactions. You have a mystery that you have to investigate. You have great, great NPCs. There is secret society stuff going on. You've yeah. got monsters. There are Up to monsters. Mine had a lot of the same stuff. <laughs> right. Agreed. Agreed. And, and it, both of you could, it really shows that we are uh, suckers for good um, tropes for, for gaming. Yeah. So, yeah. So uh, there we go. I really do want to hear what everyone else has to say. Like, what would your answer have been? So certainly if you are a part of the Facebook group, um, I will send out a tweet. I will send out a a Facebook response. Um, I certainly want to hear everyone's. And Ray, are you ready for your next uh, podcasting homework? I am. I can't wait to procrastinate on it. (laughs) Fantastic. I think think this this one's going to be easier to do. Rafe, you find yourself on the set of a movie. Any movie that has ever been made. You find yourself alone with one person associated with that movie. It does not have to be an actor. It could be as anyone associated with that film. And they say, you know what? I'd like to play a uh, solo role-playing game with you. So who is the person associated and what's the film? So uh, what I'm looking for is uh, an individual associated with a movie and a movie specifically. Um, so I would guess it would be like you get to play a role-playing game with an individual. What movie are they making at the time? If that interferes. So so that is your question. It is a okay. rambling one. I will find a way to write it down that makes a little bit more sense. Uh, but we are needing a movie, uh, individual associated with the movie and okay. the movie set. That is not easier, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> These questions are so wide open. I love it, but I also hate it. I, I know. I, I and, and listen, I, I invite you to come up with some for me uh, as well. But I can't I help it your sometimes my brain... <laughs> My brain comes up with these things, and I want to ask these questions. So there you go. I have questions for Drew in the main episode. It makes sense that you'd have a homework question in this. All right. Well, that now, about here's does the it for thing, this. Rafe. Uh... Yeah. Sorry, I stepped on it. I'm just so excited. No, um, I was getting ready to sign off of the episode. So, cause, um, <laughs> so yeah, you don't no. have to give your last pick? Yeah, exactly. Because um, I had a heck of a time with this. I, I've already mentioned two other movies that... And, and like Brick, I had I had completely gone, okay, it doesn't have bikes. Who cares? Bikes aren't actually part of our criteria. We complain about them not having bikes, but the truth is we've had more than enough movies that haven't had bikes. Let's do Brick. And then I, the problem is it doesn't really have enough characters. It's, it's, it's another one of those. It's really a solo character, you know, so, solo protagonist. So I, I put it off, but. And and I got I went back and looked at the movies we picked. I went back and looked at my list of movies from the very beginning. And the truth is, following up 
it chapter one is a really hard task because we we both ranked that movie so high, both as a mm-hmm. movie and as a kids on bikes story, because it is so perfect in especially the kids on bikes regard. So anything I come up with is going to fall short compared to that. It's like, now I know how you felt having to come up with a pick after Goonies. <laughs> <laughs> so I went, okay, well, what, what do we have left? I have picked quite a few films based on nostalgia, mm-hmm. you know, and I've picked one movie in particular, that I went into blindly. Right. And really enjoyed. And that was fun. Mm. And I went, okay, you know what? Here are these lists of Kids on Bikes movies that everybody recommends. And there's a pick on here that I have never seen and probably should have. Mm -hmm. It's not a great follow-up to It Chapter One because it's in that Kids on Bikes horror subgenre. Oh, I am so intrigued because I'm wondering if what you're going to pick would have been my next pick. (laughs) And, well, there were two, I will tell you, there were two on the list that I really still want to see that I've not seen. Mm. And I I went with the earlier one rather than the more contemporary one. Uh, And that is, I have picked for my last pick for this season, 1987's The Gate. Oh, my God. Which I have not seen. Oh, my I've watched the trailer easily eight times now and gone, I cannot wait to see this movie. Why have I held off, you know, 25 years or 35 years to watch this movie? Well, I'm going to tell you this right now, Rafe. I already have my character, my draft pick picked. (laughs) Because prior to us even discussing this podcast, I watched The Gate for the first time in the last three years and went... Man, that is a great Kids on Bikes character. (laughs) Wow. Here's the crazy thing. There are two must-have movies on this list left, and I thought for sure you were going to choose one of them, and you did not. And so that is going to make it real interesting when it comes to choosing which one I'm going to do, but I cannot wait, cannot (laughs) wait to discuss The Gate with you. Please make sure you watch the remastered version, because... They did a, uh, a really amazing job with it in the last five or six years. Um, okay. And I think you are in for a real treat. And I think uh, the, the same is to be said for uh, any audience and listeners who, who want to do that. Uh, and that is brilliant. So join us in two weeks for our discussion of The Gate. Until then, you can find the podcast on all podcatchers. You can email us at the Never Say Die Podcast. It's all one word at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at Never Say Die Cast. It is a, a thriving group and uh, full of very interesting people with good questions. You can, yes. should be one of them. We are on Twitter at Never Say Die Cast. Uh, thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song. We really appreciate it. And Megan Daly for our show artwork. And if you like what you've heard, why not leave us a five star review on one of those podcatchers? It helps others find the show. It makes us feel loved we've already addressed drew's ego need here to be wanted and loved and such and remember even if all the other characters in your party are played by the same actor never say die 